What is up, you guys? I have been going through some old footage of my time in Tanzania with the Hadza from earlier this year, and I am reminded of one simple fact. And that simple fact is that the organs of an animal are absolutely the most treasured part of that animal. Whether we're talking about the heart, the liver, the spleen, the pancreas, the testicles, the brain, these were the organs. These were the foods that the Hadza absolutely treasured. They treated them like gold. They were shared among the tribe, but the lion's share of these organs went to the hunters that were successful in the kill. And they were distributed and savored among all. There was one point when I was with the Hadza and one of the tribe members was holding a liver of a goat that we had killed. And he just placed it so gingerly onto a pile of rocks before they cooked it and distributed it among the tribe. It was really interesting to behold. Now, you all probably know that I love organs. That is why I built Hardened Soil, because for many of you, getting organs is difficult in terms of quality or simply obtaining them because you don't have them in your normal grocery store. What we make at Hardened Soil are grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, freeze-dried, desiccated organs from New Zealand, the best on the planet. I wanna share with you guys two reviews, and then we'll get into the podcast. I started my keto carnivore journey on October the 1st, 2021. And in the first week of my new, new lifestyle, along with taking six capsules of Firestarter each morning, I lost seven pounds. Along with the seven pounds, I feel much more energized and clear-minded. I also have zero cravings for junk. Highly recommend. That is from Hannah H., who titles the review, love it in all caps. Firestarter is our high stearic acid tallow from suet in a capsule. This is a review for beef organs from Michelle M. My daughter and I started taking the supplement a few weeks ago and right away we both noticed an increase in energy, not like you get from caffeine, but just a steady energy throughout the day. We were able to get things done instead of napping in the afternoon. We aren't dragging through the day like before and we are sleeping great too. We are very thankful for this product. This is the kind of stuff that makes me very proud and very excited to do this work. So check us out at heartandsoil.co, that's .co, to reclaim your birthright to radical health, and if you need more organs, which all of us do in your life. My guest on this week's podcast is Safety Namos. He is an incredible individual. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Bitcoin Standard, The Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking. This book is a groundbreaking study of the economics of Bitcoin. If any of you have been following Bitcoin over the last few weeks, you know that it has gone gangbusters, back over $60,000 for one Bitcoin. The Bitcoin Standard was a pioneering uh, work in exploring Bitcoin's value proposition as the hardest money ever discovered and the only working alternative to natural cent national central banks for international payments. We talk about all of this in the podcast. Saifuddin is a PhD. He holds a PhD in sustainable development. Interestingly, he can comment on energy use, as we do in this podcast, from Columbia University, where his doctoral thesis studied the economics of biofuels and alternative energy sources. Incidentally, in his thesis, he discovered that the economics of biofuels and alternative energy sources don't make a lot of sense for humans. I've been talking about climate change a lot, guys. This is a deep rabbit hole. We get into it a little bit in this podcast as well. He also holds a master's in science uh, in development management from the London School of Economics and a bachelor's of engineering from the American University of Beirut. His website is safedean.com, S-A-I-F-E-D-A-E-D-E-A-N-S-A-F-S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N.com. And 
If you do not know about cryptocurrency, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, this is the podcast for you. I firmly believe that in the next few years, those who are able to invest in Bitcoin will secure financial sovereignty and financial independence. And those who are not will sort of be left by the wayside looking at a consistently devalued American fiat dollar currency that is subject to much inflation. Why, do, why does this have anything to do with nutrition? Because if you can't hold on to your money, if central banks are devaluing your money, we are printing trillions of dollars a year now, I believe. Uh, the majority, I think it's like 30, 20 to 30% of the dollars in circulation right now are printed in the last 18 months. It's crazy. You can't buy food. You can't do any of these things. These are all central tenets of being a healthy, sovereign human. I also believe that many of the concepts involved in Bitcoin, personal sovereignty, independence, truth, open honesty, the, the slogan of the Bitcoin community, which is don't trust, verify, are all deeply connected with our ethos as people who are looking to remember where we have come from as humans and trying to understand how we best navigate this changing time, this changing landscape in our lives. This is a super important podcast, guys. Listen to it. Let us know if you have questions. You can email us radicalhealth at heartandsoil.co. And as we have released this podcast, Heart and Soil now accepts Bitcoin. So as a pledge, as a statement of belief in the quality, in the really the uniqueness of this form of currency and the way that it will change the lives of billions of people, we wanted to accept Bitcoin at Heart and Soil, and we now do. When you go to the checkout page, you can select paying with BTC pay server. So that is our vote for a sovereign, sound, hard money system that is open to all. So enjoy this podcast with Safedine. If you enjoy this podcast in general, please leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. That one really moves the needle. Leave us a review everywhere you can, anywhere you can. But everyone who leaves a review at Apple Podcasts will be considered for a free signed copy of my book, which is given away every month. I also want to say this podcast is a source of cost-free information. It is a labor of love for me. And I appreciate the sponsors who make this podcast possible. I want to start this week with BlueBlox, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. They make, in my opinion, demonstrably the best, highest quality blue blocking glasses out there. I like the Jasper. You can get dark orange or clear if you want to be in a restaurant and don't want people to think that you're looking like Elton John. They also make a red light device, a sleep mask. They have all kinds of things. Many of you may have seen me doing stories recently amongst red lights. Blue Blocks sells red light bulbs that can be useful for this purpose as well in your home. I firmly believe in controlling your circadian rhythm as so many hormones are connected with this and protecting yourself with blue light is key. Check them out, blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 15% off your order. Also, I want to give a shout out to the folks at Let's Get Checked. The website is try, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com. And the coupon code, I believe, is CarnivoreMD. It might be Paul. It's one of those two. They gave me something that has both of those coupon codes. So try them both. But the cool thing about Let's Get Checked is it's a way to get your blood work checked at home. You don't have to go to a doctor's office. They have all sorts of tests. You can do CRP, lipids, fatty acids. You can do a male hormone panel, which is their probably their most popular test. Many of you know that male hormones are crashing. And if you don't check your male hormones, men out there, how do you know what's going on? So you can register at their website, trylgctrylgc.com front slash Paul or Carnivore MD. Check it out. Let me know which one works. Order a male hormone test kit or others online. It'll be delivered to you 
uh, next day in discrete packaging, you send it back in a prepaid envelope. Within three to five days, the results are available. They're reviewed by a physician. A nurse contacts you to discuss the results. And let's get checked. Is CLIA approved, which is the highest level of accreditation for any lab? It's a great way to get your blood work done. It's super easy. You can do it at home. I checked a bunch on myself and I found it very convenient. It saves you a trip to the doctor. And I believe that like so many things like Bitcoin, we should democratize this. Make it open to the people. If you want to get your blood work checked, get it checked. You go to a doctor and you say, I want to get my testosterone. Maybe they say, you don't need your testosterone checked. You're fine. Or you say, I want to get my CRP checked. Or I want to get my CBC or Chem7 or lipids checked. Maybe they don't want to do it for you. So this is what's awesome. Let's get checked. And the democratization of blood work. Check them out. Try LGC, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com, front slash Paul or Carnivore MD. Let me know which one works. Shout out to White Oak Pastures as well. Whiteoakpastures.com. Sixth generation family farm. Will and Jenny Harris are amazing people. Grass feeding, grass finishing, rotational grazing, the best meat that I've had in a very long time. You can use the code CarnivoreMD there for 10% off your order. Jenny is so cool that I called her last year and said, hey, Jenny, can we do corn and soy-free eggs? She said, I will make it happen. They also have corn and soy-free chickens. Excuse me. I don't, they, they might have corn and soy-free eggs, but they definitely have corn and soy-free chickens. So that is something they did specifically for us. So if you're looking for low linoleic acid, low PUFA chicken, check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. The lamb is delicious. The beef is out of this world. They also have organs. If you can get fresh organs, that's fantastic. They have suet. They have fat. They have all kinds of good stuff there. They're an incredible farm to support, whiteoakpastures.com. Yet another amazing farm is in Northern California, Belcampo, B-E-L-C-A-M-P-O. You can use the code CarnivoreMD there for 20% off your order. They do grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised steaks in the Shasta region of California and Uruguay. And the Uruguay ribeyes are out of this world. They do organic as well, and they are also part of the solution. I've had Anya Fernald, the chief cowgirl, not really, but you get the idea, at Belcampo on the podcast before to discuss her ideas, and they believe in what we believe in. So as you know, meat is threatened. We need to protect this, and we need to feed our families well. You must vote with your dollars. And you are either voting for multinational corporations that are monocropping and not doing well for the environment and the soil, or you are voting for small, local, semi-local regenerative farms that are part of the solution. So check out the sponsors of this podcast. On to the podcast with Safety and Amos. Enjoy this one, guys. This is a good one. It's a game changer for sure. Stay radical. Safety, thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. I'm excited about this one. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure. There are so many questions that I have for you. And I think that my audience is probably a collection of people. Some people are very familiar with Bitcoin. Some people have probably never heard of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. So I thought we would start basic and then get into more and more sophisticated questions. I myself am still a cryptocurrency neophyte, but I've definitely been orange pilled. And I think it's a fascinating space. And I'm just so excited to get you on the podcast and, and try to draw some connections because this podcast is called Fundamental Health. Traditionally, I've spoken about nutrition and food and autoimmune disease and illness. And I definitely think that um, as we move into the next few years of our lives, understanding currencies and economics will benefit all of us in massive, massive ways. So let's just start with the, the most basic and probably one of the most interesting questions. From your perspective, Seyfedeen, what is money? And, and why, do we, why do we need this? Why is it valuable? 
Um, I follow the Austrian school understanding of money, which uh, thinks of money as being a medium of exchange. You know, you understand things by their function. So money functions as a medium of exchange, and it is the natural solution to the problem of barter. So as individuals, um, we are going to want to exchange things with one another. In a very primitive economy, if you're living with 100 people in a small tribe, and all you do is, uh, you know, hunt all day, uh, you have a few goods um, and all you, th these are the only goods that you have, and you have a few people that you know very well that you're going to spend the rest of your life um, within a few hundred yards away from, or a few kilometers or whatever. But you know, you're very familiar with those people. You're going to be interacting with them. You're going to be marrying into them. All of your life is going to be around them, and you only have a few goods. In that kind of setting, you don't really, uh, you can exchange things directly. You know, you hunt rabbits, and I hunt, uh, and I fish. And I give you some of my fish, you give me some of your rabbits. All I own is rabbits and fish and, you know, maybe a couple of uh, items of clothing or whatever. So we don't really have a very complex economy. We can exchange things directly. Now, as the scope of our society grows in terms of the numbers of the people that we interact with, whether it's because we start interacting with other tribes or because our tribe continues to grow, we start being able to specialize in the production of more economic goods. And so we get more things, you know, now you have clothes and you have weapons and you have um, all kinds of different sophisticated things. And you have more people specialized in producing more things. And now people have a problem of coincidence of wants in that you have fish that you you're very good at catching fish, but you'd like to buy a sword, say from somebody, but the swordsmith doesn't want your fish. He doesn't like fish. He wants to eat rabbits. So what you need to do in that case, you know, the natural solution for this is to use a medium of exchange where you buy the rabbits from the rabbit hunter. You know, you give the rabbit hunter your fish, he gives you the rabbits, and then you go and you exchange them for the sword. Now, you've in that situation, you use rabbits as a medium of exchange. It's the natural solution to the problem of the person you want to sell to doesn't want the thing you want. You buy the thing that they want and you give it to them and you take the thing that you want from them. Uh, but over time, naturally some things are going to do this job better than others so rabbits are going to be one option fish is another option swords are another option and salt might be an option and over time we can understand just through the economic logic and the um, nature of the supply and the demand of different forms of money we can see which ones would work well and which ones would work badly and we can understand why we ended up with gold being the dominant form of money all over the world by the end of the 19th century and in the bitcoin standard in my book i argue that that is because gold has the uh, regularly lowest rate of supply growth or um, you know every year we're only adding a small amount of gold to the stockpile of gold that we have and that's because uh, gold doesn't ruin. So all of our previous uh, production of gold in the past is piling up. And so new production this year is always a small fraction. So gold is always the least inflationary metal. And that's why it ended up being uh, the metal that is money. So over time, gold just naturally wins as money because people who use it as money are going to become wealthier than people who use rabbits or other things that are not suitable because you know you can breed rabbits very quickly and so if you store your wealth in rabbits um you know people can make a lot more rabbits and devalue your existing rabbits plus, plus of course you know rabbits have all kinds of other problems but you know with other metals you know it was natural that um uh, copper 
iron and eventually silver would also lose out to gold because these metals are easier to inflate. You can make more and more of the supply. So in my mind, what ends up being the most important characteristic for money over time is its saleability over time. It's the ability of the money to hold on to its value into the future. So that if you want to buy the money today so that you can spend it in the future, the money that holds on to its value best is the money that's more likely to win out in a free market. And of course, the other factor is the money that you can move across space uh, without significant loss of value. So, um, you know, rabbits are complicated to move to the next town if you wanted to uh, move. Uh, and, you know, if you wanted to use a base metal like silver, like copper, potentially even silver or iron, you need large quantities to store an amount of wealth uh, that you could store in a small quantity of gold. So gold has better saleability across space, across time, ends up being the natural choice of money over history because it stores value. And I think that's really uh, the, 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 um, that's really the characteristic that matters in money, how much it stores and loses value across space and time or saleability. So this has to do with the stock to flow ratio of any particular form of money, right? Yeah, so the stock to flow is basically the uh, inverse of the supply growth rate. So the supply growth rate is how much the supply grows every year. The stock to flow ratio is the ratio of the existing stockpiles of a specific metal or market commodity to the annual production. So it's the inverse of it. So gold has always had an annual uh, a stock to flow ratio around 50 or 60, 70, something like that. You know, it always grows at around 1.5% per year. Um, so that's, uh, that's really, I argue that's what matters the most in what ends up being money. It's the thing that has the highest stock to flow. And historically things like seashells, like you said, rabbits, maybe arrowheads, these have all been used as money, but as you make the point in your book, the hardest money ever wins. So what is, what is the idea of hard money or sound money? We've sort of already talked about it, but let's make sure everybody understands yeah. that. So the concept of hard money refers to the hardness of increasing the supply. How hard is it for people to make more of this? And so you can measure this by looking at the rate of annual supply growth. Uh, so the stock to flow is the way that I like to express it. Um, you know, if you look at the supply growth, it's, it's a number, say, like 1% or 2%. But if you uh, take it as the inverse, then it ends up being a number like 50 or 60 or 20. So that gives you a better um, intuitive understanding of the uh, magnitudes involved. So... Um, Hardness is how hard it is to increase the supply. And you, you see that this matters because you could get a big increase in demand. If something begins to get used as money, people will want to acquire it and buy it and hold more of it. And then when they start holding more of it, the price goes up. And so that incentivizes the producers to make more. So for things that have a low stock to flow ratio, because they are consumed, you know, for consumer goods, things that you buy in order to consume and then consuming them ruins them and um, alters their original form. Think oil, for instance, or copper. You know, that stuff gets used and it rusts and, uh, you know, oil is burned. So therefore, people don't have large stockpiles of oil and copper. Nobody keeps large quantities of oil and copper. I mean, some, some people do, obviously, um, for their needs. But if you added up all these stockpiles of oil and copper that exist in the world, they'll be somewhere in the range of annual production, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. 
but it won't be 10 times larger than annual production. We don't have 10 years production of oil sitting in oil storage or copper because these things are moved around. So if there is a spike in the price of oil or the price of, of copper, the quantity that's on the market is pretty small. The price uh, uh, can rise very quickly, but then mining production can increase the uh, supply very quickly. And so that brings the price crashing down again. So that's why I think, you know, gold ends up winning out. Um, the hardness of the money is a distinct concept from soundness, although they're related. Uh, sound money refers to the idea of money that wins its place in the marketplace. It wins its place as a money in the market because people choose to use it out of their own free will. So sound money is not particularly about gold um, by definition. It happens to be conflated, by gold, conflated with gold because for the majority of human history, uh, people just chose gold freely the market would choose gold as money and so um i argue that you know the market left to their own people will choose the hardest money so the sound money will be the hard money and the hardest money will be the money that retains its value the most or resists inflation in the best way so before i i'm a physician i think about medicine just explain inflation to us briefly, because I think this is a term people are going to hear more and more in the next few years, and yeah. it's going to affect all of our lives massively. And you kind of mentioned that term, but I think inflation and deflation, let's just make sure everyone understands those terms. Yeah, so the, the term inflation can be used in two ways in economics, and um, you know, depends on who you ask. Uh, so one way to we, we could refer to price inflation, which refers to prices rising, and that's the more common usage of the term. Uh, I think the more correct usage of the term is an increase in the supply of money. Now, those two are, of course, related, but it matters in language what you're referring to. So in order to be clear, I prefer to uh, make a distinction and refer to price inflation or supply inflation. Um, but they're often just used interchangeably and um, it, it's hard to keep track all, at all times. So um, effectively when you increase the supply of money it's just basic economics that you're increasing the supply and therefore the demand that exists for this commodity is going to be distributed over a larger quantity and so the price of each unit or the market value of each unit is likely to decline all else being equal of course so inflation um is it's a huge 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 problem uh, it's you wouldn't get the impression that it is a huge problem if you've gone to university and studied economics. It's mentioned as this kind of you know economic phenomenon that just happens um, because you know um, life happens and uh, prices just go up because prices go up and it's just the job of the central bank to make sure that they don't go up too much. But of course, there's no reason for prices to go up. It makes no sense whatsoever. We have a world in which we're always producing more of everything. And things are constantly getting cheaper in real terms. Even uh, today, even though you know prices are rising and um, there is some degree of price inflation, if you actually measure um, prices in terms of human time, in terms of human labor, you'll see that everything is getting cheaper. So over the last forty years, forty years, you know, there's data on this. Um, look up the Simon Index, um, and it's it measures the prices of things over the last forty years. We have more of everything today than we did 40 years ago. We have more houses, more cars, more copper, more zinc, more gold, more oil. We have more of everything. So it doesn't make sense that if we have more of everything that uh, the prices will continue to rise. We have more of everything per person as well, you know, not just more in uh, general. 
so prices and, and prices do drop in terms of human time so um, you know, look at whatever job, compare the salary today to 40 years ago, and you'll see that in real terms, in terms of your wages, you're able to buy more of uh, the basic commodities that you uh, would desire. So why is everything always getting more expensive? Well, the answer is things aren't getting more expensive. It's the money that is getting cheaper. So the reason prices go up is not because things are getting scarcer. It's because money is getting uh, more abundant. And so People are unable to save, and that's really the um, main issue. So, um, you know, if you've gone to university and studied economics, this isn't presented as a major issue. Inflation is under control. It's always around 2%, 3%, and, uh, you know, 1% to 3% is where it's always roughly been for the past uh, 40 years or so. And it's not a major issue. It's a price well worth paying because uh, it allows the economy to uh, move forward. And this is this is basic common sense knowledge among most economists. Now, among economists of the Austrian school, which is kind of the uh, heretics the, uh, of economics, uh, to whom I proudly belong, um, you know, the kind of people who believe crazy things, just like in nutrition, the sort of people who believe that you don't have to eat six to ten servings of grains every day to be healthy. Um, it, it, it's very similar, the dynamic. Among the Austrian economists, the, uh, you know, the, the, the issue is uh, there is no need for the inflation to happen in the first place. There is no need for the money supply to be increased. And I think this is one very big and fundamental difference between mainstream economists and uh, Austrian economists, which is that Austrian economists understand that you just don't need the money supply to increase. You can run any economy on any quantity of any money as long as you can divide it into smaller pieces. And so you could run the entire US economy on $10 trillion or $1 trillion or uh, $1 billion or even $1, as long as you keep dividing it up into smaller and smaller units. And so, you know, if, if we had 10 times the money supply that we have today, we could run the same economy, but everything would be worth roughly 10 times more. Um, so, or if we had a tenth of the money supply that we have today, we could still run the same economy, but everything would be worth uh, a tenth of what it's worth today in terms of uh, dollar prices. But in real terms, it'll be the same. So, you know, your salary uh, right now, let's say your salary is $1,000 a month and your food costs you $800 a month. Um, in a world in which we had a tenth as much money, your salary would be $100 and your food would cost you $80, all else being equal. So there's no magic requirement for your salary to be 1000 and your food to be 800 and the total money supply to be X billion dollars or trillion dollars. The uh, Any number and any money supply can work. And, and my favorite example of this is Turkey uh, in 2001, I think. They they have an incredible history of inflation. Turkey, one of the uh, countries that had the highest amount of inflation in the 20th century. So in uh, 2000, they wanted to make a new start. And so they introduced a new currency, which is the new Turkish lira. And the exchange rate between the two was one million to one. And so instead of, you know, your house costing uh, 500 uh, billion dollars uh, and, and just people having to deal with a lot of zeros, they knocked six zeros out of the uh, exchange rate. And so we went from $1 buys you one and a half million Turkish liras to $1 buys you one and a half new Turkish liras. And guess what? You know, did the Turkish economy shrink by a million to a millionth of its size overnight? Did Turkish people lose 
you know, were they reduced to a millions of millionth of their wealth before? No, life continued. Everything was the same. Just got rid of six zeros. So the quantity of money doesn't matter. That's the Austrian contention. And so if the quantity of money doesn't matter, you can run an economy with a fixed supply money. And all that will happen is that as more people enter the economy, as more goods are being produced, the price of money rises. And that's a good thing. The value of money increases. That means people who hold money witness their purchasing power increase over time. And people, of course, are extremely scared of this idea by their macroeconomics textbook, which, you know, scares them into thinking that saving is bad. And uh, if you if the money appreciates in value, then everybody would save. And then if everybody saves, then, you know, nobody spends any money. And then if nobody spends any money, then we all starve and die and we get uh, the economy crashing down. Of course, it's an extremely childish and um, ignorant of economics. It's, it, it's genuinely ignorant of economics, this kind of understanding, because, you know, people don't spend their money because uh, they uh, people don't have to spend money because, you know, they just want to. They spend money because they have to, because they need to survive. So I don't care how much more my money is going to be worth next year. I still need to eat today. I still need a house today. I still need clothes today. So if now it's of course true, if you're uh, inflating the money supply, so the money supply is constantly increasing, then the value of my money is expected to decline more. I'm more likely to spend money. I'll be spending more and more. So if I expect my $100 to be worth $90 next year, I'm more likely to go buy a pair of pants that I don't really need because I know that next year that pair of pants is in real terms is, you know, now I can buy it with that $100. I don't really need it. But next year, if I needed it, I wanted to buy it. It's going to cost 120 and I won't be able to afford it. So I don't want to hold on to my 100 bucks and I'll buy frivolous stuff that I don't really need. So, yes, they're right in that it increases consumption, but it increases frivolous consumption. And they're right in that it will reduce consumption, but they're completely clueless when they say that it's going to reduce consumption to a point where the economy comes crashing down because that's insane. Uh, people still need to eat and people will still um, spend because, you know, also people die. People want to experience life. <laughs> you, you know, you, people don't just want to stack money until they die and die with a high score. It's not a video game where you're just stacking money. You want money because you want to experience things. And, you know, the clock is ticking and we could all die. And so uh, we want to experience things. And a hard money allows us to defer our uh, desire for experiencing things because it allows us to provide for the future. When I think that my $100 will buy me a better pair of jeans next year or that this pair of jeans will be worth 90 next year, then I'm more likely not to buy it now, I'm more likely to save it and keep it until next year, which means people will end up having more savings People will be more financially independent because, you know, they got savings that they can count on and that are constantly appreciating. That's kind of the uh, flip side of it. Now, maybe you could just take us through the history of currency in the United States real quickly, and we can talk about the gold standard and then how we went off the gold standard and bring us up to the current day. And then we can transition into cryptocurrencies and how these kind of fit in. But I think it's fascinating. And I see so many parallels in what you're saying with medicine, because there's just like you're saying, there's this mainstream macroeconomic paradigm that says inflation is normal. It happens all the time. And you must spend money that the sign of a healthy economy is people spending money. This is the whole idea of a stimulus check. We're going to give and people, borrowing. yes, borrow money at debt. Yeah. And we're going to give people 
a magic $600 and that's not gonna have any consequence. And we've sort of already hinted at the fact that it'll have big consequences and we'll get to that. We're gonna give people a magic $600, which they'll spend frivolously because we're just giving it to them. They're gonna buy an iPhone or video games or, or food or whatever they're gonna spend money on. And, and that's, that's the sign of a healthy economy is the flow of money as opposed to something completely differently. Um, but in, you know, in mainstream medical school, and, and of course there are heretical paradigms within medicine as well, we just tell people, oh, your illness is just the result of your genetics and you can't do anything about it. And the only thing you can do is take these pharmaceutical drugs. Aren't you so happy and grateful to us that we've developed these pharmaceutical drugs? These pharmaceutical companies are truly um, you know, Godsend and Pfizer and AstraZeneca and J&J &J and, you know, Merck, these, these are really the, the children of the gods in, in giving us these magical molecules because you were broken from the beginning and there's no way that you could ever actually correct your disease. And of course, you and I both know this is wildly flawed and, and very important to consider. So I think that as I started learning about this cryptocurrency idea and really just money in general, as I was trying to under cryptocurrencies, I saw so many parallels and I thought, wow, there is this real... Uh, just like with medicine, there is this propaganda that tells people you cannot be healthy, therefore you should take our medications. And with, with money and these cryptocurrency ideas or just economics in general, I was thinking, I never even thought about my money. I just put my money in a bank account or I gave it to a financial planner who grew it a certain amount per year. And I patted myself on the back and said, look at my money growing. And I never thought like, oh man, oh shit, <laughs> there's inflation. So let's talk about what the US dollar is and maybe how it's changed over the last few hundred years and then we'll get into Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, as a little disclaimer, I'm not a US historian and you know, there's a lot of US history out there so we're not gonna be able to cover a lot of it but I'll give some uh, broad strokes. Um, historically, you know, money was, uh, there were some earlier forms of money like uh, seashells that were being used in the US. Uh, and so, you know, the expression shelling out comes from the fact that uh, in many parts of the US people use shell seashells as money. But of course, that got um, that got demonetized as more and more uh, gold and silver started making it its way here. And gold and silver were the money of uh, the free market. And the dollar's name comes from uh, the Taylor coin, I think, uh, which was a silver coin and specific amount of silver. And then, uh, so the US was. Um, and the, and the U.S. was on a gold standard in the 19th century. There were periods in which it was on a bimetallic standard. So there was gold and silver being used as money. And the, the drama of gold and silver is um, was a long-running uh, issue in the 19th century. But by the end of the 19th century, it was resolved in the favor of gold. And there was only really gold left as money. And um, it was... Um, it, it was working great in some ways, but it wasn't perfect. If you ask me, the reason it wasn't perfect was because banks had some degree of monopoly that allowed them to engage in uh, fractional reserve lending, which meant occasional banking crises that um, created uh, bank panics and uh, depositors losing their money and banks going under and banks requiring bailouts and, of course, banks calling for public help. Um, and, and public subsidies. And so these were happening quite frequently. Now, I think, you know, in a healthy free market, what would have happened is that the way this would have been corrected is that people who engage in this would have just gone out of business and everybody else would have learned the lesson and then there'd be no more fractional reserve banking. But if you've got some degree of monopoly, you can keep getting away with um, doing bad things, as you can see, like with um, 
uh, say, uh, government uh, dietary advice bodies, which, you know, can continue to tell you to eat your six to ten portions of industrial uh, sludge every day um, and never go out of business. And so what they did instead was that they uh, instituted a central bank, which, you know, in principle sounds like a good idea. If there's a bank that's in trouble, the central bank will step in and save them and prevent the depositors from losing their money. But of course, it's actually a bad idea because what this uh, ends up doing is that the uh, depositors are going to actually, um, I mean, the, the fact that the banks have a safety net of a central bank now just means that they can engage in fractional reserve lending more and more. But historically, it was, uh, it was a two-way tango between banks and governments. So they both um, benefited from this arrangement at the expense of everybody else. Governments managed to get banks to um, buy their debt, buy their government bonds, and therefore allow them to engage in excessive spending and getting into war. And that was the big one in 1914. And um, by giving them some degree of monopoly, governments would allow banks to engage in uh, fractional reserve banking and credit expansion, which is essentially means you know uh, issuing more money than uh, uh, you have on hand. And so basically printing money. So it was a, you know, the, it, it was a great arrangement for both of them where, you know, you let us get away with printing money and we let you get away with printing money. And it's, uh, you know, the first disastrous consequence of this, of course, was World War One. And a very important point about World War One is that, you know, if you read the history books, it's not quite clear what the war was about. Like it wasn't this massive, um, you know, global conflict of the world being split into two camps over some ideological or racial or whatever uh, lines. It was just a fight in the Balkans that kept on snowballing and um, roped in everybody in the world like one big giant Royal Rumble. Um, and the reason I think, you know, you, you could point to the direct reasons of why Austria did this and why Germany did that and why Britain entered. But ultimately, uh, the, the important point is that what allowed the war to, you know, maybe the, the war's causes are not unique. We've had wars before. But what turned this into a global conflict that lasted for four years of absolute carnage was the fact that governments could continue to print money because they went off the gold standard in 1914. So before that, in the 18th and 19th century, when the king wanted to fight a war, he needed a big stack of gold to, to pay to soldiers before they go to battle and to equip them and to buy them the weapons. And so once battle started to go badly for him, or once his coins started to run out, then he was in trouble and he had to go and collect taxes from his people and ask the people, you know, please give me money so I can fight a war, which, you know, in order to do that, you better have a very good excuse for why you want to fight the war. And, uh, you know, uh, getting a new castle for my cousins is not a very good excuse that's likely to get people to uh, support it. So wars before that were quite limited by the fact that nobody could print gold. But then in 1914, the restraint on the government was relaxed enormously because governments could now, instead of just printing money in order to, um, instead, of just, instead of having to tax people for the money, they could just print the money first and take the purchasing power from people's pockets without having to actually, you know, knock on their door and tell them, give me their gold. So you would have your paper money at home and its purchasing power would be getting drained by the printer in the central bank. That is used to finance the war 
And by the time the price inflation showed up, you know, you had a million scapegoats that you could blame for the inflation. It's usually, you know, a mixture of bankers and um, ethnic minorities and foreign powers and so on. So then you, you throw the blame on them. And since then, really, we've we've really been in in the century of inflation. The last century has been the century of total inflation and total war, and it's just governments uh, printing money. And it's 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 a very uh, powerful failure mode, and it's very hard to break out of because the money printer sets the rules for everything in society. You know, the money printer. If you have a money printer in your basement, and you can just take it out and print unlimited amounts of money. You can remake society, you can remake education, you can remake nutrition, you can remake everything, and you can remake um, the understanding of the money printer itself to, to make people want it and um, desire it. And, you know, you don't have to be, um, you, you know, you, you, we don't have to posit anything extraordinary to see this. We, we see it all over the world in all cultures and in all countries. Governments have a vested interest in the money printer um, doing its job, and they will always be much more sympathetic to the stories that uh, promote this rather than um, uh, being against it. And so we were on a gold standard in the United States until 1971, right? And then we really went to what we can call fiat, and maybe we can define that term. But I just think that's a really fascinating thing, that until 1971, there was some connection between gold and our money, and then yeah. it went away, right? Yeah, I, arguably the the U.S. went off the gold standard in 1914. Huh. Um, it went back to the gold standard in no, sorry, the U.S. went off the gold standard in 1917 actually, and then went back on in 1921 or 22, and stayed on it until 1934, and that's when they went off the gold standard, and that's when most countries went off the gold standard in 1934. They instituted something called the gold exchange standard instead where basically the central banks could trade gold with one another, but the uh, populations had to uh, use the paper money. And so uh, the, they had much more leeway for inflation uh, in that arrangement. I discuss this in detail in my next book, uh, The Fiat Standard. But that, of course, was unworkable because you know they, had more, they were getting into more and more inflation, but the other governments were... Um, you know, other governments were ending up holding the bags, essentially, of inflating currency, and they weren't happy about it. And so in 1971, they removed the redemption of gold as an option for foreign central banks. The U.S. removed it. And so, well, there's a missing point here, which is in 1946, the world went on a dollar gold standard where the world's central banks were using dollars to trade amongst themselves, but the dollars were redeemable in gold. And that was the new global monetary system. And the U.S. Um, you know, had a massive advantage in that situation because they could print money. But they were restricted by the fact that foreign central banks could redeem their dollars for gold. And when they started actually doing it in the late 60s, Nixon just went and said, oops, sorry, guys. Uh, screw you guys. I'm going home, as Eric Cartman says it. And it just basically said, nope, no more gold. And at that time, you know, an ounce of gold was $35. Today, it's like 1800 or something like that. So where are we today with US dollars? Like, what is a US dollar? And is it really true that the Federal Reserve, that the US Treasury can just print as many US dollars as they want? Do we really just have this sort of 
fairy dust unicorn fart currency today that's propped up by hopes and dreams? I mean, what, what is the US dollar in 2021? What are we really dealing with? Well, I mean, the good news is it's not exactly unicorn farts. It's not exactly Zimbabwe level. It's not exactly in Lebanon. It's 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 not reached the point where you've got an actual physical printer with enormous quantities of physical paper being churned out at increasing rates. Um, it, the process of how it works since 1971, you know, once the redemption of gold was removed, I, I discussed this in detail. I studied the fiat system in in my fiat standard uh, book, which is the forthcoming one. You can sign up for the Kickstarter on my website and um, get the first draft of the book now and then get the uh, final draft uh, by Christmas. So in the Bitcoin standard, I study Bitcoin and explain how Bitcoin works. In the fiat standard, I do the same thing for fiat, imagining that fiat is a software implementation and I'm trying to explain it to the user um, of, of how it works. And to be fair, it's not... It's not a system where we've got, um, you know, printers going on and paper money. It's not the majority of fiat money is not paper. The majority of fiat money is digital. So um, less than 10% of the dollars that exist are in physical form. So the dollar is predominantly a digital currency, uh, just like Bitcoin. Um, so the way that dollars are created, again, it's also not entirely through the, it's not entirely capricious. It's not like, you know, well... <laughs> this current, um, the last couple of years with the way that things have been going would challenge this a little bit in terms of, you know, all these handouts that are happening. But usually it's not so capricious as if it's, you know, a president could just press a, press a button and uh, $5 trillion uh, materialize. But yeah, we're getting there. But um, <laughs> the regular way in which uh, the fiat system is supposed to function is that money printing happens when lending happens. I think this is really the key point. And it's a point that doesn't get emphasized enough. And in my fiat standard, I the entire book is a um, starts from that premise and then looks at what are the implications of this and tries to analyze the implications for society at large and then the implications for the rise of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin can fix this. And so whenever you take out a loan, you know, if you go now and you get a house loan, um, you know, the bank is not going to take a million dollars from somebody else's account and give them to you so that you can go buy a house. The bank is going to make those million dollars out of scratch. They're going to have a bunch of um, reserve of some, you know, they're going to have other depositor money and other assets on their balance sheet backing that. But the new dollars are created at that point because you've taken out a loan. And the flip side of this is that when you pay off the loan, the dollars are effectively destroyed or if you default on the loan the dollars are effectively destroyed so the money supply is reduced so they give you a checking account with that money in your account and that money they just made so money is constantly being made made and uh, created by the banking system in the fiat uh, world and um you know the, the, it's 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 not exactly a system where we have a bunch of people that are just printing money and enslaving everybody else it's a little bit more complex than that in that the people who are borrowing are the ones who are benefiting from the money printing effectively at the expense of the people who are saving. And so the natural outcome is that, you know, you're constantly punishing savers and rewarding borrowers. And so savers, uh, you know, nobody saves anymore. People don't keep money and everybody wants to borrow. And basically the winning move in the fiat system, you know, the way to use the fiat software correctly is to try and get into as much debt as you can. That's... That's the way you win, because every time you get into debt, 
your bank is printing money. So you're giving a banker um, an excuse to print a whole bunch of money. So um, they're going to share some of the spoils with you. And that's why, you know, buying your house on credit makes a lot more sense than buying it uh, with cash. That's when nobody buys houses with cash anymore, almost. Right, right. Okay, so where does, where do, let's just talk about Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? How does it fit in? Because when I learned about this, I was thinking, oh shit, like all of this money that I have sitting in the bank, you know, the money that I have sitting in the bank is de devaluing every year. And I've heard all sorts of different numbers. I mean, Michael Saylor, who's a Bitcoin advocate, a Bitcoin maximalist would say 10, 15%, you know, devaluation on the money in my bank account every year, which is pretty scary because I look at that and I think, well, maybe I invested it with a, a, a financial planner and I'm getting eight or 10% return and looking at my portfolio and going, huh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm getting 8% return on my, on my fiat US dollars. Um, but if Michael Saylor's right, and this inflation is really to this degree with US dollar, I'm actually losing money. Even if I'm making 10%, I'm, just, I'm down 5%. The purchasing power of my money is going down. And so you think, yeah. wait a minute. And this is the question that I've heard you ask and Michael Saylor asks, how do you store value? So how does Bitcoin fit into this equation? Yeah, well, um, before I get into Bitcoin, it's, it's, um, I think the key insight that Saylor brought on this, which I think is absolutely brilliant, is that um, he told us, uh, you know, you, sh you should stop thinking about inflation as one number. There's no one number of inflation. Inflation is a vector that is um, spread out over all kinds of different goods. And so inflation is different for different goods. So uh, what you're really concerned about is the things that you want to buy. And so if you want to buy a house in a nice neighborhood in New York or in Miami, you know, look at what has happened to the prices of those houses over the last 20 years, and you'll get the rate of inflation that is more relevant for you. You know, you if you're making, say, 7% with your financial planner every year, but those houses are going up at 10%, you're getting shafted by inflation. Um, and this 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 is really, I think, the, the, uh, an excellent entry to bring us into the um, relationship between uh, the, the the hard money and the fiat food, the fiat money and fiat food, which I like to talk about a lot. Which is that the best way for you to avoid inflation is to stop eating, uh, you know, expensive, uh, highly inflationary goods like uh, meat and healthy food, and eat industrial junk. Like if you live on a diet of industrial waste then there's no inflation. You know, if you eat a barrel of Twinkies every day, that's going to be 99 cents a day. And these kinds of industrial things, you know, they, they can be ramped up and their production can be ramped up. Their margins are so high that, and there's an enormous ability to scale their production because everything is industrial and you're not really linked to the natural world because there's very little actual nutrients coming in from the natural world. So you can ramp up production of that poison and keep it cheap. And as long as, you know, you're eating that stuff, then there's no inflation. So, you know, I think, you know, Michael Saylor puts it really well. There's no inflation if you want to live like a poor person. You know, for poor people, there's not much inflation. Um, well, obviously, it's not it's not true that they suffer from the inflation the most. But as long as you buy the poorest things, then inflation doesn't affect you as badly. Uh, where it is a real problem is if you're trying to have nice things. You know, if you want to eat a ribeye, inflation is a problem. If you want to live in a nice neighborhood, inflation is a problem. If you want to go to a good university, inflation is a massive problem. These are the things where it manifests. So... Um, 
Now, of course, the, the CPI is a bunch of government uh, statistics, which is, um, you can read about the story of how they managed it in the 1970s when inflation was very high. The way that they kept the CPI in check was to basically take out the things that were going up at very high prices and always make up some story. Oh, no, well, you know, oil, it's because of the uh, 1973 war. And so we're just not going to count it as part of, uh, you know, we're not going to count energy costs as part of your living costs, just energy, you know, just the most important thing in your life, along with food, which they also took out. And they took out a lot of uh, food items out of this because, you know, they're too sensitive to whatever. So they keep taking the expensive stuff out. And so you keep the cheap um, things that don't matter, that don't get affected much. And then you get a relatively low level of inflation. But of course, people can see this, you know, people are constantly complaining about the fact that their paycheck buys less, that their savings are not working, and that the quality of life is disintegrating. And so, um, you know, and <laughs> very important way in which they managed this was that in the 1970s, they promoted, the, the US government promoted the consumption of industrial waste <laughs> as a replacement for food. And, you know, diet advice came to reflect this reality. You know, um, eggs were high in cholesterol and beef was going to give you uh, high cholesterol and heart disease and um, colon cancer or whatever. All of that pseudoscience, uh, is, it's not entirely innocent and it's not only to um, promote the consumption of the industrial sludge made by um, agribusiness. It's also to cover up the inflation that the government is doing. So I think that's a very important connection between the two. Uh, now, I just want to clarify for people, CPI is consumer yes. price index. Yes. Yeah, consumer price index is CPI. And what you're talking about is they're kind of manipulating it. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I when I first came across it, I was like, what is CPI? But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, and and it's um, it's you know it's 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 a metric that can be very easily gamed because it's entirely dependent on what you put in the basket that you choose, and so um, don't expect it to show a lot of uh, high inflation because you know it's made by people who want it not to. So um, this is just one aspect of the problem of inflation. You know, the, the theft of the inflation is just one aspect of it. And in my um, two books, the Bitcoin Standard and the Fiat Standard, I discuss in depth many of the other facets of the problem, like, um, you know, the, the, the economic uh, miscalculation it creates in all these business cycles and recessions. And the fact that we have these recessions is to a large extent a product of um, inflation as well. Um, it, it only happens because of inflation. And um, one other factor which I find to be very important is the increase in people's time preference or how much people think about the present versus the future. And when you have hard money, when you can save for the future, when you know that, you know, if you earn a gold coin and you just keep that gold coin safe under your mat mattress, uh, then you know that, you know, whenever you want to use it, it's going to be worth more and you don't have to think about it. That offers you a lot of certainty about the future. It offers you a lot of, um, uh, it, it relieves a lot of your uncertainty about what the future can bring. And that, therefore, allows you to start thinking more of the future in all of your decisions. On the other hand, when you don't have that, and, and I saw this uh, up close in, in, in Lebanon when, you know, when the currency was collapsing, people's attention in life shifts to the day-to-day -day more and more in everything, you know, in your business relations, in your family relations, in, uh, in the way you think about your health, in the way you think about your social life and everything, you become much more present-oriented because the future is far more hazy. It's uncertain. You don't know how to provide for the future. Whatever money you have today, you don't have a reliable way of 
sending to the future. So all of these are um, some of the many problems associated with uh, fiat money. And B Bitcoin fixes them all. And the reason Bitcoin fixes them all is because Bitcoin is the technological solution to the problem of inflation. We've spent the last 100 years having a political problem of inflation, and we've had all good economists try and convince the world and inform the world that no, all of the stupid propaganda that you're getting from your government financed uh, university professors about inflation being good is bad. Inflation is bad. We need to stop inflation. We need to go back on a gold standard. We need to have a hard money. We need to not have the government decide what is money. We need to not have the government mess with the money supply. It's a very hard ask to explain all of this to people. And um, it's a very hard ask, particularly when the solution is political, you know. So it, it, getting you to understand all of those things is one thing. And then <laughs> getting you to mobilize politically in order to vote people into power that are going to turn off the money printer is uh, many hundreds of orders of magnitude more difficult, particularly because you are inherently, fundamentally, inevitably, forever disadvantaged in the game of politics by the fact that you don't want to use the printing press. So it's a, it's a game that's rigged in favor of the printing press. You know, the, it, it's not so much that people um, abuse the printing press and as much as it is that the printing press, uh, the money printers, you know, they abuse society because that's it. Once you have a position of power where somebody gets to have a printer, nobody controls the printer. The printer is just going to control everyone and it's going to just go wild because whoever runs the printer hardest can buy the most votes in the election. And so it's a, it's a political process that's only going to lead in one way, more inflation, more inflationary spending. So you see, you know, politically, you don't ever see any kind of realistic political force that is actually talking about um, reducing money printing. You know, even people like to think maybe, well, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, you know, these were um, anti-inflationary. It's not true. It was um, relocating the money printing from certain interest groups to other interest groups. So instead of money going to labor unions and welfare, a lot more money was going to um, military contractors and uh, other, um, you know, Republican and conservative friendly uh, interests. But money printing doesn't slow down. It's just constantly uh, happening. So Bitcoin is a technological solution for this. You don't have to fix your political system and your monetary system in order for you to be able to save for the future anymore. You have the solution on your own computer. You just download a bunch of software, you run the program on your computer, and you've got your own Bitcoins. You can save money in them, and the supply cannot be increased. This is really the most important point about Bitcoin is that nobody can increase the supply of Bitcoin. The supply of Bitcoin is fixed, and it follows a perfectly predictable schedule, which it has followed for the last 12 years and will continue to follow for the rest of its existence, which nobody can alter. So um, it's a system that is ideal for anybody who wants to save and doesn't want to uh, lose value over time. So how would you explain what Bitcoin actually is to someone who has no experience in the financial realm and is not very computer savvy? Like, how would you explain Bitcoin to my 70 year old mother or to me, for instance, you know, like, because people always, I think they want to know, I think that one of the hesitations people have in investing in Bitcoin is I don't even know what I'm buying. And as, as you've talked about, and I've heard, as I've heard Michael Saylor talk about, like, 
Bitcoin is not meant to be a speculation tool. It's not meant to be something just get rich quick. It's, it's a long-term store of value, but what the heck is it? Like, how would you explain that to somebody at like a really simple, basic level? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I would just say it's money. It's, you know, we've got several forms of money. You have you know, just like there's the euro and the dollar and all of these uh, different currencies. And uh, particularly for your grandma, she'll uh, think of gold as well. It'll be easier to explain gold as money for her. Perhaps for younger people, that might sound weird. Um, so, but we do have dollars and euros and yens and so on. And we have gold. And now we have another form of money, which is a money that is done on the, that um, exists in cyberspace and that exists on the internet that nobody can control. And um, ultimately, you know, you can you can get into. I think honestly, the, the the honest answer is that you know the technical aspect of Bitcoin is not something that can be explained in a few minutes. You're going to need to just um, go on the internet and spend a lot of time reading about it and there's no alternative for it and there's no easy shortcut for it and um, that's fine but you know you don't know you also don't really know how your fridge works or how your laptop works or how your car works but you can still use them so i think you know um, what i try to communicate to people is the usability aspect so what is the fridge it's a thing that um, keeps your food cold how do you how does it work well you know if you want to know how it works go online read about how fridges work but if you want to if you want your current meal not to go bad you know put it here get it out tomorrow and you'll see that it's still uh, edible so what bitcoin does as a form of money is that it can't be inflated the supply can't be increased and so over time it holds on to its value very very well and so it's a new form of money in that regard because we're used to money losing its value over time this is a money that gains value over time and so it's uh, yeah that's that's how i would uh, explain it and the more technical side is all of these things with blockchain technology which is very technical and i think of as a ledger um, there are lots of good videos on the internet that sort of begin to explain blockchain technology, but it is sort of technical computing. And I like your analogy. We don't necessarily have to understand how a refrigerator works in terms of Freon, this and electrical circuits here. But I think that maybe let's, let's get into some of the criticisms of Bitcoin and answer, answer some of the things that people levy against Bitcoin, because that may help people understand that it's actually substantial or at least make the case for one side or the other. So I think people see gold and they think, oh, it's a gold coin. And again, like what use does gold have for most of us other than being uh, an agreed upon medium of exchange? And so we, I guess you could maybe use gold to make something, but how many of us are actually using gold to make anything in our lives? Maybe it's used in circuits and whatnot, but we don't necessarily use platinum or silicone as a money. So this idea of money is like, it's kind of just like you said, the agreed upon sound currency that is the hardest, um, meaning the least inflationary. And as you said, there's only gonna, ever gonna be 21 million Bitcoins ever minted. All of them will be minted by 2140. And maybe we could just, I could just ask you, what is the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin right now? And how much is coming on the market every year as people are mining it? And we don't necessarily have to get into mining during this podcast but that is how new Bitcoins are, quote, created. So what's the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin right now? Right now, it's around 50 for this year. So uh, the annual growth rate for Bitcoin this year is around uh, 2%, a little less than 2%. So we've got about 18.7 million Bitcoins that have already been produced in the first 12 years. 
And over the next uh, 100 years or so, we're going to have the next 2.3 million Bitcoins produced. So we're almost at 90%. We've almost had 90% of the Bitcoins produced. 88% or so of the Bitcoins have already been produced. So there was much faster production earlier because the rate of production declines over time. So... Um, um, yeah, so the, right now, you know, Bitcoin is about to overtake gold in terms of the stock to flow. So gold stock to flow is probably around 58, 60. Gold, Bitcoins is in the low 50s. So it might happen in the next year or two or three, but it'll definitely happen by uh, 2025 because then Bitcoin's uh, stock to flow is going to double because the new supply, uh, the new uh, production drops by half every four years. So we had one drop last year. And that's, you know, we went from a growth rate of around 4% to 2%. And then we're going to have another drop next in, in three years down to 1%. And that's when Bitcoin is going to become the hardest money ever. Uh, it, it'll have the low, lowest supply growth rate. So I think this is really what I'd like to focus on. Um, you know, if you want to explain the idea of it, you can, you, you know, the, the way to understand it is that there's no way of making more of it. The supply grows at the lowest rate and it's just going to continue to decline. And no matter how many people want to buy in, there's no mechanism for making more. So that's why in its first full 10 years of trading, you know, since from 2000, from January 1st, 2011 until December 31st, uh, 2020, in those 10 years, Bitcoin averaged 200% per year growth on average. So as an average for two, for 10 years, so it went from under uh, a cent to over 60,000 by the end of that year it was at around $30,000 so it's it, it's gone up something like uh, 3 billion percent during uh, the the uh, during the first 10 years which is an astonishing number and and it's not something that is a freak um, it's something that's a direct consequence of the fact that it is scarce so that's one aspect of it and then the second aspect is that it is money that can be sent across the world in a purely technological manner. So it's not um, every other form of money. If you wanted to send it to somebody who is not in the same room as you, you have to go through somebody else. You know, you had to go through a manual process where you give it to somebody and then that person does it. Or you're going through a, uh, you know, a, a platform that um, automates this process, but is controlled by somebody else, which could kick you out. But Bitcoin turns this into a, um, into a technological process like pressing a button, you know, just like, um, uh, you know, ju just like working with any kind of machine where, you know, you, you, you click the microwave, it turns on and it runs, you click the uh, washing machine and it works. And similarly, you know, you click your magic Bitcoin machine and it sends the Bitcoins halfway around the world in, well, it doesn't have, it doesn't really send them. It's just the, the bitcoins don't really move the bitcoins are in the clouds and in the computers of everybody on the network but it, uh, it it transfers the title of ownership from an address you control to an address that is controlled by somebody in the other part of the in the other end of the world and um it does that without having to resort to any political institutions without having to use any uh, existing banking infrastructure so it's a much faster way of moving money because you don't want to compare it with your consumer payments you don't want to compare it with your visa mastercard payment you want to compare it with the 
um, with the final settlement payments that happen between banks and between central banks. And in that regard, you know, these take much longer um, because banks need to clear it with one another and it has to go through central banks and so on. But this is final money that can be sent halfway around the world in a couple of hours. And so there are so many interesting rabbit holes to go down, but let's talk a little bit um, about the threats to Bitcoin and answer some of these questions for people. Because I think when I started thinking about Bitcoin or if I tell my mom about Bitcoin or if somebody's reading about cryptocurrencies, let's just talk about Bitcoin specifically in this podcast, they'll see all these headlines and they'll, they'll get scared and they'll say, you know what, why doesn't the US government just regulate it out of existence? Who's to say that the US government or multinational corporations or the International Monetary Fund like won't just make the movement or the use of Bitcoin illegal. Um, and we can talk about all of this. And these are, I guess these are known as what is what are called FUDs, which is a term that I've never heard before. So this yeah. is fear, uncertainty, and disbelief, right? So there's, I want to make sure we talk about no. the en- fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Okay. So this is, I want to talk about the energy FUD. Um, but it's really kind of like a PSYOP term, I guess, that they're spreading this misinformation. But let's, let's make sure that we unpack this for people. Like, Who's to say that Bitcoin is not just going to evaporate tomorrow, that that Biden is not going to say, you know what, there was just this ransomware scare at this meatpacking company. And, you know, the U.S. government is going to say, you know what, Bitcoin is illegal. Who's to say that they're not just going to make it completely illegal? I'm just playing devil's advocate so that people can understand this. I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I imagined this was what was going to happen. Um, And I was quite surprised in 2013 when Bitcoin started to gain prominence, particularly because it was involved in a few illegal things, um, I, I expected, you know, this was it. Now the hammer is going to come down and uh, I'm going to be glad that I haven't gotten into Bitcoin because, you know, now it's, it's going to be like being a terrorist if you're into Bitcoin. And surprisingly enough, and, you know, looking back now, I think one interesting uh, story is, um, the, the, so there, there was the story of the Silk Road website, which you may have heard of, um, and that was maybe one of the first stories that brought Bitcoin into a public consciousness. It was a big story when the website was busted. And uh, a lot of people heard about Bitcoin from it. Now, in my mind, I thought, you know, this was going to lead to the government crackdown on it. The crackdown never came. And instead, what ended up happening was Bitcoin did about a 10x rise over the next um, four or five months or something like that. And later on, a few years later, I remember the uh, investigator who was handling that case, um, she was talking about it, about the case, and she said something along the lines of, well, I'm not sure if she was referring to this case or some other case, but she said something along the lines of, initially, when I first started looking into this, my initial reaction was that, yeah, we should ban this. This is bad because it's used by bad guys and it's used by criminals. And then we quickly realized, no, that's just not going to work and we can also benefit from using this in order to track down criminals and so th- this is a, this was actually a big surprise for me but it's really been about eight years of this exact scenario repeating when all when bitcoin comes to the attention of many different kinds of authorities so if you'd asked me in 2012 2013 i would have expected that bitcoin would have was going to have a much harder uh coming eight years you know by 2021 I thought it's going to be an underground dark web currency, more or less. I would, did not expect that we'd have you know billion dollar Wall Street uh, banks uh, lining up to offer Bitcoin products to their customers. 
I thought it was going to be a much harder road, but over and over and over again, regulators at the SEC, uh, SEC at the CFTC, um, at many government bodies come at it and don't strike it with that hammer. And I think that's extremely curious. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. Number one, it's that uh, Bitcoin is basically built to resist government uh, control. It's built to be decentralized. And decentralization is not just, you know, a fancy hippie word where, you know, it's just we want to get rid of the banks, man. It's 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 uh, it, it's an actual engineering uh, imperative in this particular application in Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is really the only decentralized digital currency because the way Bitcoin functions is that it needs to be made so that it doesn't have a single point of failure, so that there is no point of attack, so that when the government's um, natural instinct to ban it kicks in, the person who wants to do the ban realizes that they're, they're stepping into something like trying to eat a whale, a living whale. This is just, you know, you can try, um, but it's, uh, you can't just eat a whale while it's alive. So more, you know, it's, um, it ends up looking extremely difficult to pull off because there's no central point of failure. And ultimately what Bitcoin needs in order to operate is uh, it needs a network of people who can um, use devices that connect with one another and agree every 10 minutes. You know, that's what the software does. It gets all these computers to agree every 10 minutes on changing the ledger. So every 10 minutes we add another two, 3,000 transactions. And so, um, you know, all you need is a bunch of computers to send and receive about one megabyte every 10 minutes all over the world. And then you do that and the network continues to live. So think about how difficult that is. There are literally billions of devices around the world that can do Bitcoin. And, um, you know, the infrastructure that Bitcoin relies on is so ubiquitous. And, and, and it's not even, and there's no fixed set of infrastructure. Any computers can make the network. And if you destroy all the computers in the network today, you know, 10 minutes from now, a whole bunch of new computers can come and can continue doing the network. So you don't need any actual device um, for the network to continue to operate. So it's extremely hard to attack it from the one hand. And then from the other hand, there's this other aspect of it, which is that if you're, um, if you start understanding what Bitcoin is, to the point where you think you want to ban it. Well, you also understand how powerful Bitcoin is and you want in. <laughs> and that's, I think, that's what the most, that's what been the, what has been the most fascinating aspect of this because you would expect all these figures of authority would want to fight it. And instead, so many of them are embracing it. They're buying it themselves. Their kids are buying it. The kids keep telling them about it and then they buy it. And um, it just continues to happen over and over again. And the way that I think about it is, um, and the way that I explain it is, is that I think of it as a, a technology. And people who think that it's going to be banned are thinking of it more like a product, more like a uh, company. It's as if, you know, um, somebody's setting up an international bank. You know, if, if you and I were to go and set up an international bank that goes around central banks, and just, you know, here's our own money and here's our own currency and you can deal with us. They wouldn't let us do it. There are so many uh, tripwires in the laws and the regulations that prevent you and I from setting something like that up. But this is not a bank. There's nobody to throw in jail. There's nobody to be held liable. 
for doing this thing. It's a spontaneously emergent phenomenon from all over the world where tens of thousands of people or millions of people are all using these machines that get into contact with each other every 10 minutes and arrive at it. So it's um, it's extremely hard to kill and there's a very strong incentive for keeping it alive. And as a technology, I think the way to think about it is that as a technology, um, people quickly start thinking of it from the perspective of, oh, this is something I want on my side. I don't want it to be with my enemies. I think most people think like that. And to be perfectly honest, among Bitcoiners, we think that, you know, the smarter people are the ones who think like that. And the um, less smart people are the ones who um, are just so fixated on this um, modern sophistry of modern education, which is essentially, you know, government propaganda. And it will problematize anything that is against government propaganda, that they can't see things in terms of their own self-interest. They still think in terms of the stupid mental models implanted in their head by um, their universities. But uh, yeah, that's how I see it. <laughs> so I, I, I don't think they're going to ban it. Didn't this kind of happen in India? I've heard you talk about this, that India was thinking about banning it. And then India maybe woke up and said, hey, this is a very powerful thing. If we ban Bitcoin, we're essentially putting ourselves back in time. We're going to create a collapse of our own economy. I think a lot of these countries are sort of realizing if we ban this technology, it could potentially destroy our country or put our country decades into the past. Absolutely. I, I think this is what people are beginning to realize now. Um, and, and I mentioned this in my book. I, I have a, a, a sentence in my book that became quite uh, viral. Uh, people are always tweeting it uh, on Twitter, which is you can't isolate yourself from the consequences of people holding money that is harder than yours. And that's we see this happening over history many, many times in West Africa. West Africans used uh, glass beads as money because they were very uh, hard to make in West Africa. They didn't have the technology for making them. And so when Europeans came to West Africa and saw that these people had um, glass beads as money, they went back to Europe and they would fill entire boats with little glass beads, take them to West Africa and use them to buy things. And as a result, they ended up essentially buying everything in West Africa to the point where people started selling them other people. That's why these glass beads came to be known as slave beads, because they were used to buy slaves. Because you, you make the, if you make the money of a society, the entire society is yours. Even the people themselves, you can end up buying them. That's really the dangerous thing about it. And that's, that's I think, you know, the, um, the, the point that I think smart people get about Bitcoin, which is, it doesn't matter what you think, whether it's, this is good or bad or nice or ugly or whether it should be faster or slower. It's immaterial. This is gunpowder. If you don't have it, it's going to be used against you. You know, you can't just say, and that, that's why they don't matter. I think, you know, if, if you had a military that said, oh, you know, imagine we had a military that ran on swords and uh, sticks and then um, gunpowder is invented in the country next to us. What do you do? Do you ban gunpowder and say, we're not going to do it because if you have gunpowder, you can shoot our military soldiers and we're not going to allow something that shoots our military soldiers. Is that what you're going to do? No, because you know what's going to happen then. There's going to be military soldiers on your land that will have gunpowder and they will have the upper hand, but they won't be yours. You know, If you don't have the gunpowder, it's going to be used against you. And so 
we we saw this also with silver in particular with india and china who stayed on the silver standard into the 19th into the 20th century and silver continued to lose value through that time and the countries became massively impoverished and that's and and, and foreigners had a massive advantage you know if you were a european you had gold as money and so if you were a european trading with india or traveling to india every year you go there you can buy more stuff and so you don't want to end up holding the chump change. You don't want to end up holding the money that is losing value or other people are holding the money that is gaining value because it's um, it's very dangerous. <laughs> can we talk about the energy FUD? And, and I use that term, you know, uh, again, from the perspective of the devil's advocate. You and I both know there are so many criticisms against what I believe is the best food on the planet. Maybe we could call it the hardest food on the planet, you know, animal foods, animal meat and organs. And, and one of the FUDs against animal foods has been that they are somehow um, bad for the environment and that, 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 that they're polluting the environment or methane and all these things. And I've done many podcasts most recently with Robbie Sansom and many others kind of talking about this, uh, how this is, this is just fake. Um, but let's talk about the, the energy FUD with Bitcoin, because this came out recently. Um, you had a couple of great podcast episodes, uh, you know, Elon Musk, the Fiat Rockefeller, and then you had another one, you know, will electric cars save the planet? Maybe we could just summarize some of your thoughts around this. I've also heard Michael Saylor say, Bitcoin uses energy, but it's a small amount of energy, and it's the best use of energy humans have ever devised in the history of human, you know, it has the potential to improve billions of lives. It's the best use of energy we've ever thought of. Why do we care if it uses energy? But you have some amazing thoughts on this. So let's, let's talk about the energy fund, because I know people listening to this are going to say, well, I heard on the news that um, they're going to say, well, I heard on the news that that it's using all this energy and it's polluting the planet. So like, let's talk about this a little bit. Oh, I lost your uh, audio. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I think the... Um... Uh, the, the fundamental problem with the uh, energy uh, FUD or the people who hate Bitcoin for the energy is that it is an incoherent uh, Luddite, you know, um, technological, an enemy of technology, enemy of progress, enemy of humanity view. It's, uh, it's, it's fundamentally not a, um, it's, it's not an engineering debate. It's a moral debate. And the debate is about this question. Is it good for human beings to consume energy and consume power? Is it a good thing for them to do this? And, if you want to argue that Bitcoin is a waste, well, then you have a lot of explaining to do. You know, you probably watch TV. You probably have a washing machine. Why should you get to use a washing machine? You know, washing machines spend an enormous amount of electricity. Why not wash things with your own hands? You know, your hands will work just fine. Uh, why do you need a car? Why do you need an airplane? You can just cross the Atlantic with a kayak. You don't need an airplane. Why do you need a car? You can just walk everywhere. Um, you can, you know, why do you need a house that's made out of steel and modern, um, you know, steel requires a lot of energy to make, you know, the steel doesn't grow on trees. You have to make giant furnaces get really, really hot with a lot of coal in order to be able to uh, make steel bars and all kinds of uh, important modern industrial products without which you would very likely have a very, very, very low chance of surviving um, the next year. You know, our lives are so dependent on the fruits of using high amounts of energy and so in this regard uh, my my defense of bitcoin which i'm um i think is just 
human progress is constantly about taking tasks from being done menially by hand with human judgment and making them get carried out with the reliability of um, power and energy and electricity in particular the most advanced and uh, the most uh, useful form of energy because it is regulated and it's just you know optimized for delivering steady amounts of energy right when you want them where you want them so our lives uh, are uh, impossible to live without high amounts of energy consumption and that's a good thing in fact if you look at the quality of life for people across the world by any reasonable measure whether it's um, life expectancy income productivity infant mortality all measures all, all of the things that nobody would um, contend are good or bad uh, nobody would contend are bad things you know all the things that everybody wants you know nobody wants to live in a place where a majority of kids die before the age of five but all of these things are very heavily correlated with energy usage the reason that some societies have a lot of their kids die before five years and a lot of some societies don't is strongly linked to the fact that the societies that don't have an, the ability to use enormous amounts of energy they use it in order to build structures and houses that withstand the winter and protect people from the diseases that kill them in the winter they use it to build sewage sanitation electricity um, medical equipment hospitals all of that stuff requires modern technology they use it for sanitation they use it for washing machines running hot and cold water all of that stuff it needs more energy and it's it's it, it's a testament to just how delusional and brainwashed most people are that they think you know we can just live in a world where we don't consume this much energy or we need to improve our world by consuming less energy or that people think that you know we can get rid of hydrocarbon fuel that we could just we're going to transition away from oil coal and gas and it's it, it's ridiculous and for me you know people who think like that are not serious adults that you can have a serious conversation with because it's for me it's on the same level as the child who um wants to go to disneyland but doesn't want to get into the car that's taking them to disneyland because they just want to be in disneyland and they don't understand you know as a child they can't understand the idea that no the alternative to getting in the car is not getting into disneyland you know we're not taking you to the car so that we take you away from disneyland we're taking you from the car to the car so that we can take you to Disneyland. So the alternative to getting into the car is that you're going to have to walk for three days to get to Disneyland. <laughs> so that's the alternative. You don't have to get into the car, but if you want to go to Disneyland, your choices are walk three days or get into the car. It's hard to communicate that sometimes to, you know, a child who's on a lot of sugar and wants to go to Disneyland. And that's exactly what it's like to try and communicate with people who think, you know, we're going to get rid of um, energy sources, we're going to get rid of electricity, or we need to reduce electricity, or we need to reduce our consumption of um, hydrocarbons. It's ridiculous fiction, because all of these people are able to do this today, this very moment, you know, they can walk away from all the things in their life that are being produced by that stuff. And guess what? They don't. Yeah, they, they still get on Twitter and get on Zoom and get on the internet to complain about all of those things. But they've never tried building a microchip <laughs> without using uh, hydrocarbons. And I wish them luck with that. You know, try and build a microchip out of sticks and stones and see how that works out for you. But really, until you've built it, all of your noises that you make complaining about how other people building energy are just 
in my mind, you lifting a big sign and saying, I am an idiot, basically. I'm a hypocrite and an idiot because I think that, you know, <laughs> I get to decide for the entire planet what uses of energy are legitimate and what are not. So, you know, um, gaming devices waste an enormous, they don't waste, they consume an enormous amount of energy. Uh, washing machines, refrigerators, uh, airplanes, flights, jacuzzis, all of these things are things that people take for granted who live in modern society, you know, ventilators, modern medical equipment, all of that stuff requires energy. There are only two ways in which we can decide who gets to spend how much energy. Either everybody decides for themselves or one person decides for everybody else. Those are the only two models. You can continue to, um, you know, make this sound more sophisticated than it is. But all that you're saying is, I want to be the one who decides for you what to do. I want to be your slave master. This is ultimately what it comes down to. So it's a use of energy. that It does require a lot of energy. Bitcoin does consume large amounts of energy because it is worth it. How do we know that it is worth it? Find You look at all the people that are using Bitcoin. They're paying for it willingly. People want to use Bitcoin. And they're using it because it constitutes something useful for them, you know. The all of this electricity, nobody it's being spent willingly. So, how is Bitcoin consuming all of this electricity? Because people are paying for it, people are producing it, people who have power plants are hooking up miners to it. How do they do that? You know, why are they doing that? For the very same reason that your washing machine consumes electricity. You bought the washing machine, you put it in your house, you connected it to the power socket, and you paid the utility company and it paid you the electricity. Who on the face of the earth is in any position to tell you, no, don't do this with your washing machine. Wash it with your hands. Bitcoin is the same. And just because it's more energy consumption than washing machine doesn't change that. It's not up to you to decide what is valuable and what isn't valuable. The people who are paying for it are the ones deciding. So all of the people that are constantly complaining about Bitcoin spending too much energy, it's it's it, it's a deeply... Um, childish and idiotic perspective on how the world works because it just assumes it, it assumes that you know everybody has to justify to everybody else uh, what uh, what they do with their energy and that's not how the world works and that can't be how the world works unless we have a world of slaves and slave masters if you want to live in a world of equals if you believe that you are an equal to other human beings and i, I obviously a lot of the people that are com concerned about this don't believe that they believe they are better than others because they are they, 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 they do better virtue signaling but if you believe that human beings need to live together in a society in which they don't enslave one another then the only right mix of energy is whatever people decide to do and so if i want to spend my money on mining digital coins because I think that's worthwhile, you know, that's what I want to do. So you can be mature about it and, and try and understand why is it that those people are spending all of that money? That's the interesting question. But of course, the lazy and childish thing is to just, um, you know, stomp your feet in the ground and say, I don't like this and therefore it should be banned. It's it's a fascinating conversation. And I, I've heard the statistic, correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard that Bitcoin uses 0.1% of the world's energy. So that's a significant amount, but it's 0.1%. And they compared it to transportation, which I think was more, but you know, maybe even the same order of magnitude. So it's Bitcoin is using energy, but what are we doing with Bitcoin? We're giving people this hard money that is that is able to be used all over the world, that is deflationary, that is, I, I mean, as both you and Michael Saylor have said, <clears throat> that has the potential to 
change the lives of billions of people for the better. Like this is the best use of energy I've ever heard of. And when it comes to the type of fuel that we use to make that energy, this is a fascinating rabbit hole that we'll have to do a part two on. I just want to, in the interest of time, because we're wrapping up for both of us, I've heard you say something amazing about electric cars, which is that they are external combustion engines. And I thought this is so, so amazing. I would encourage all of the listeners to listen to Safe Needs podcast, specific, specifically the episode about will electric cars save the planet? Because if you have an electric car and you believe that you are somehow doing something that is cool, better for the environment, do the math and understand that in order to make that electricity, you had to burn coal to make that electricity. So it's an external combustion engine. Just because there's not carbon dioxide coming out of the tailpipe of that car, doesn't mean that that car doesn't have a carbon footprint. And then we go another level deeper, which is very fascinating and triggers so many people. And I don't understand why. And we have to even ask the question about carbon dioxide in the environment. And that is a question for another podcast. But as I've said on all of my previous podcasts and in everything I've done, we all need to be willing to at least ask these questions. And I think the question there, which is a very compelling and interesting question is, yes, the amount of carbon dioxide in the environment is increasing in parts per million. What are the major contributors? And is that really the cause of climate change? And we have to be willing to ask those questions without people labeling us climate deniers, anti-vaxxers, you know, grandma killers. We have to be able to have these conversations or we're all just propagating the same propaganda. And I think that, look, no one wants their city to be polluted. We're not advocating for smokestacks burning coal, giving people coal lung, right? There are cleaner ways to burn hydrocarbons and there are more dirty ways to burn hydrocarbons. And there are all sorts of renewable ways to make energy to mine Bitcoin. And as you've noted, renewables have some problems with Bitcoin if the supply fluctuates, you know, certainly we will use renewables. A lot of the Bitcoin mining, as I understand in China is based on hydroelectric power. Here in Costa Rica, the majority of the power is hydroelectric. El Salvador just made Bitcoin legal tender and the, the government there is looking at using volcanic energy to mine Bitcoin. Bitcoiners are certainly thinking about this because of the cost of kilowatt hours for miners. It, it seems to, Bitcoin seems to incentivize lower costs to electricity for miners, which is actually pushing people toward renewables how sustainable those are. This is the way we should be thinking in the future. Yeah. But I just think that, um, as you said, like what we spend our energy on is the question uh, that is defining the human race. And I can't think of a better way to spend this energy. I just want to show this screenshot real quick because this was particularly frustrating for me. So this is Elizabeth Warren <laughs> tweeting, Bitcoin requires so much computing activity that it eats up more energy than entire countries. One of the easiest and least disruptive things we can do to fight the hashtag climate crisis is to crack down on environmentally wasteful cryptocurrencies. And thank God for Jack Dorsey. <laughs> he said, quote, useless, complicated math problems, which is what <clears throat> uh, Elizabeth Warren calls Bitcoin. She says it's just the miners or people just solving useless, complicated math problems. And Jack tweeted, at Senator Warren, if you believe Bitcoin doesn't ultimately shift power from banks and corporations, the ones that Elizabeth Warren actually fights, back to the people globally, you're right. These useless math problems are not important. If instead you want to help us decentralize that power, math is critical. So I thought this was really an interesting exchange. And it just goes to show that these people in power in the US government don't understand how important these quote useless math problems, the cryptography that underlies Bitcoin actually are. And they're still in this energy FUD. They're thinking Bitcoin is wasting energy. It's causing climate change. And you're thinking, 
oh my God, <laughs> like this is the most important thing that's going to happen within our generation. And these people just misunderstand how valuable this use of energy is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and it's all based on these, these sort of questions. And it was super frustrating for me. And then I'll let you comment on this, that Elon was tweeting recently about Bitcoin using too much energy. And it's like, man, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. And it sends everybody into a spiral and the whole thing is super frustrating. But I think that at the bottom of it is just this idea, like, it's not that we, it's not that it's bad as humans to use energy. It's what we use that energy on. And the notion that, the notion that, that, that the climate crisis is being driven by cows or Bitcoin are questions that we really need to examine carefully because I think that's a load of hogwash. And I think that it's in both of those cases, and there's a lot of parallels here, in both of those cases, you know, meat, for instance, meat and organs, this is the best food on the planet for humans. And when you raise these animals properly, we know you can have a carbon negative system if you're even worried about carbon. And with Bitcoin, there are, we can incentivize renewables. We can make the kilowatt hours cheaper for miners. And then we think about what does Bitcoin actually do it has so many of these incredible properties. It's so valuable. Why would we ever want to stop it? So anyway, I was just super frustrated about this. And I'm hoping that, uh, yeah. that, that maybe Jack can uh, continue to talk some sense into Senator Warren. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the, the follow up to, 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 to the question on uh, Bitcoin and the answer to Elizabeth Warren is, uh, you know, you, you ask yourself, what is it that is, why is Bitcoin worth it? Why are all these people all over the world spending so much money on mining all these coins? And there are very good reasons for it. You know, I used to live in Lebanon. I watched the currency get destroyed. And if I hadn't had Bitcoin, I would have been ruined. And so it's, it's, it's absolutely insane that, you know, people who've lived in Venezuela and in Lebanon and uh, in Turkey and in Argentina and in all these countries that are constantly witnessing inflation, Many millions of people in all of these places and all over the world have been rescued, have had their lives saved financially by Bitcoin and their lives saved literally by Bitcoin as well because they got out of war zones because they had money that they had from Bitcoin or something like that. So we've literally had millions of people have their lives radically transformed by Bitcoin. Ask them if they think it's worth burning a bunch of oil or a bunch of coal for, for it. And, and of course, the vast majority of Bitcoin energy does not come from oil and coal. But that's, that's another debate. As you said, the, the key thing about Bitcoin mining is that it can buy electricity anywhere it uh, is available. So it'll never buy electricity that has other demand because you can make much more money selling electricity to people than selling it to Bitcoin. Because with Bitcoin... The network is highly competitive and the only people that manage to make a profit in mining Bitcoin are the people who sell it with the lowest cost of electricity. So Bitcoin can mine electricity anywhere in the world and that's why it doesn't compete with our energy supply. It takes away energy from waste locations that would have been wasted otherwise. So on the one hand, we are taking waste energy that has roughly a price of about two cents per kilowatt hour, something like that. And we're using it in order to give all of these people this thing. And but also more, more specifically, if you want to say what it's doing, it's taking away inflation from people's lives. Inflation is eating up about 10% of the world's money supply every year. The value of the world's money supply by 10%. That's $90 trillion of money every year. So we're losing something like $9 trillion a year or something in the range of 2.5% of world wealth is being lost to inflation every year. And that's primarily going to poor people. That's what Bitcoin fixes. 2.5% of the world's wealth as a tax. We can just stop that if everybody has access to Bitcoin. Is that not worth it? You know, 2.5% of the world's wealth for one 
thousandth of the world's electricity. And it's probably going to go up much more than a thousandth of the world's electricity, uh, but it'll still be worth it as long as people are willing to pay for it. So that's that's what it replaces. And um, you're absolutely spot on on the climate question. And I think the the, the real, the, the um, you know, the, obviously whether it's with Bitcoin or with meat, and, and I'm a carnivore myself, as you know, with, with Bitcoin and with meat, uh, it, the, 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 the people who bring these up are people whose mind are made up for ideological reasons. They want their fiat fake money and they want their fiat fake food and they hate people who have good money and good food and they want to stop it. And so they bring up this idiotic uh, pretext, not because it's true or because it makes sense. You know, the, the notion that cow farts are going to destroy the planet is without doubt one of the dumbest things I've heard in my entire life, without question. It was the dumbest thing I'd heard in my entire life until the lockdowns of last year. Uh, but it's, it's, it's astonishing. You know, this is a planet that has had so many living things go through it. And you'd think, you know, whatever conception you have of cosmology, uh, of the planet, of life, whether there is a God or whether it's just nature, the notion that this entire planet is going to become uninhabitable because cows are farting, because one organism is farting, is just laughable. And the, the, the question for me, the question that we need to ask, we need to just redefine the terms of this debate. What are the costs of us emitting more carbon and what are the costs of us not emitting more carbon? Because we only hear the hysterics talk about, oh, well, more carbon dioxide is going to lead to the oceans flooding everywhere. And we're going to have the oceans boil and um, temperatures going to rise and sea levels are going to rise. And uh, there are a million apocalypses, which, you know, none of them has materialized. Sea levels are exactly where they were 100 years ago. And um, um, temperatures are varying in something well within the normal range of variation that we've always had. So where exactly is the risk? And, you know, these people need to start making falsifiable predictions. They've been freaking out for 20 years now, at least. And the freaking out about this has been mainstream for 20 years now. And in those 20 years, you know, all of the, it's just an endless series of threats um, of things that are going to destroy us. But there's never a testable prediction. If you had an actual scientific if this was science and instead of just, you know, um, uh, witchcraft, if this was science, you'd have testable statements. You'd have somebody in 2000 come up with a statement saying, if carbon dioxide goes up by that much, you know, the result is going to be this and that, uh, more hurricanes, more sea level. We don't see any of that. We don't see anything testable. It's all models and projections into the future. So there's nothing testable because there's no way of actually expressing what the cost benefit really is. Because on the one hand, we have all these massive um, imaginary threats of, you know, uh, apocalyptic and biblical horrors are going to visit us. But nobody talks about the threats on the other side. You know, what's actually going to happen when, uh, what's, what's going to happen if we reduce carbon dioxide emissions by 90%? Well, what's going to happen is that, you know, think about it and reducing it by 90% for people who live in the U.S., it means getting to the quality of life that people in places like, Niger and the Central African Republic have. That's what it means to reduce your carbon emissions by 90%. If you, you know, people like to think that they have some alternatives where they can just get all of the nice things that we have today without emitting that carbon, we don't. Build those alternatives and put them up for people to adopt them willingly if you can. Until you do, the notion that we need to commit economic suicide as a species and go back to a standard of living that will allow the earth 
that, that will basically not allow us to have 7 billion people on earth, maybe billions need to die in order to reduce carbon dioxide. It's just not a cost that I think is, is, is justifiable, particularly given, you know, all of the horrors that we see on the other side. So it's, it's clearly ideological. It's, it, it's not in any way scientific. And it's, I know that even the end of this conversation is going to trigger people. So just be assured, I will do future podcasts. I'll get an environmental expert on here. We'll keep talking about this question. But I think that just like a COVID vaccine, just like um, vaccines in general, climate change needs to be something that we are allowed to talk about without people getting triggered and losing their mind and blackballing us and calling whatever side of the issue you're on. I'm still learning about it. I don't understand it all fully myself, but I think it's a fascinating question that we have to ask as humans. And okay, let's start with the first idea like we talked about. Let's incentivize renewables. Bitcoin clearly does that. Let's use all the renewables we can. And then as a planet, let's come together and ask, what is the best for the other 7 billion people on the planet in terms of currencies? Is this a good use of energy? Maybe this is a good use of hydrocarbons and if you really believe that electric cars are going to save the planet, you're deluding yourself. So I know you have to go. We'll have to do a part two. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You mentioned your website earlier, but I want to make sure people know where that is. Yeah, saifedean.com, S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N.com. I I offer courses in Austrian economics and you can subscribe and you'll get weekly chapters from my forthcoming two books. And uh, one of them, the the fiat standard is almost done now. You can uh, sign up to the Kickstarter, saifedean.com slash Kickstarter, and um, you'll be able to... um, You'll be able to uh, or get the first draft of the book and then get the final book delivered to you by Christmas time. And uh, um, yeah, you can listen also to my podcast, the Bitcoin Standard podcast. And my first book is the Bitcoin Standard, which has um, achieved some degree of uh, popularity in Bitcoin circles. Well, it's, it's it achieved popularity in general because it's an amazing book. So and, you know, right. I'm really proud to say that. Um, at Heart and Soil, my company, we're going to accept Bitcoin probably by the time this podcast comes out. We're going to accept Bitcoin and I own Bitcoin. I am a Bitcoiner. I'm an or- I've been orange-pilled, like I said in the beginning. Like I really believe that this is a movement that that is bigger than just getting rich. It's like supporting something that is bigger than both of us. So hopefully I'll get you back on for part two, but thank you so much. Now for I got to get you on my uh, oh, seminar yeah, podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll talk we'll do both. and organs at that time. We'll do both. All right. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. Take care.